This week on The Sport Blokes. This week, Melbourne United will take on Perth for the NBL Championship. Nathan Buckley bows out a winner as the Pies stun the Demons. Lamar Odom's punching below his weight again. And the French Open crowns a new champ and a not-so-new one. I don't think I've ever been so excited to record a podcast, Chewy. Let's go. It's just past 8 o'clock on Thursday, the 17th of June. Yeah, a bit late this week because some idiot decided to get sick this week. <laughs> well, these things happen, Stuart. Yep. And we'll do our absolute best to upload this prior to tomorrow's Game 1 Grand Final. We'll see how we go with we that. Because I'll tell you what, so much has been going on. I reckon we could talk for three hours. But we'll do our absolute best to talk for one. As we do at the top every week, Stuart, what caught your attention and what did you miss? Well, a couple of things this week. Firstly, the absolutely farcical celebrity boxing match between former NBA player Lamar Odom and singer Aaron Carter. Tail of the tape here. Odom comes in at six foot ten and about two hundred and thirty pounds. Carter is six foot even and one hundred and seventy five pounds. <laughs> I'm surprised he's that tall. And Od- well, me too. And Odom's got an eleven inch reach advantage as well. Carter could barely even reach Odom's head to hit him. It was it was so <laughs> comical. It was like watching an adult take on a child. It took two little sort of half jabs for Odom to knock him out, and I'm amazed that he lasted as long as he did. It was just. An absolute joke. So, yeah, that was something that I, I had to have a bit of a chuckle at. But look, the real thing this week, the absolute heroics from Danish football captain Simon Kier and referee Anthony Taylor, who intervened after Christian Eriksen had a heart attack on the field during that Euro 2020 match against Finland. Hold on, hold on, hold on. A player had a heart attack on the field? Yeah. Far out. I missed that one. 29-year-old. Jeez. So... Yeah, basically, ball's, wow. ball's gone out of play. Ericsson started sort of walking towards where the player was to deal with the throw-in. The guy's thrown it in, and he's basically keeled over forward. The ball's hit him in the head, and he's just collapsed to the ground. Yikes. So, yeah, really, really horrible scenes. Wow. And, yeah, look, the result of the game, I mean, it was a 1-0 win to Finland, but that that is entirely inconsequential. Kier and Taylor, they managed to perform CPR that basically saved his life. So, wow. you know, as someone whose dad had a heart attack last year, you know, I feel very, very blessed that my dad is still walking on this earth. He was very, very lucky to have it at a public swimming pool. So I understand how scary this is. And, for, you know, for those two to step in and then for Kier to then be seen consoling Ericsson's partner as she's trying to understand what's going on as well. What a hero. There yeah, is no wow. other way. And, and the word hero does get thrown about quite a lot, but this is... Absolutely. Well, this is this is beyond sport, isn't it? Like this is, is life and death potentially. It is. Wow. I mean, twenty-nine-year-old athletes—they're not supposed to be having heart attacks. It's just not no, happening. not at all. Twenty-nine-year-old people. Yeah, exactly. Jeez, I've been so consumed with the basketball, I didn't even realize. Yeah, that. it was absolutely dominant. <laughs> wow. Didn't see wow. Gee. But uh, yeah, look, it, it's looking great for Ericsson. He's in really good spirits in the hospital. So yeah, good, good stuff all around. How about yourself, Nate? Well, I've got some soccer too, Stewie, and it's way, it's way more lighthearted. So there was that instance of Cristiano Ronaldo also at the Euro 2020 where he's, uh, well, turns out to be a very powerful man because by replacing a couple of Coke bottles with water, just in the time the press conference happens, Coke shares dropped by 1.6% from $73.02 to $71.85, which meant their overall value dropped $5.2 billion. That's absolutely nuts. Did you see Paul Pogba did the same yeah, thing? Yeah, he did with the Heineken. With the Heineken. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. By the way, Ronaldo is now the leading goal scorer all time in Euros. Bit of other soccer news. I saw that Channel 10 has backed soccer to become, and I quote, the number one sport in Australia after committing $300 million to the rights for the next five years. Oh, my God. All I could do was retweet define optimism. Yeah, that's that's a facepalm moment. There's no, no chance. Yeah, that's amazing. Unless the entire population of Europe moves to Australia in one go. <laughs> 
<laughs> and maybe half it, of South America. It could it could happen, I guess. <laughs> and then and then some Olympic stuff. So US track and field athlete Shirley Houlihan has received a four-year ban, which will not only put her out of this year's Olympics, but also Paris 2024. True. Uh, for testing positive to Nandrolone and claims it was from a food truck pork burrito that she ate the night before the test. Right. Yeah. That's- We've heard a few interesting <laughs> ones over the years, like I made out with the wrong person. Pork burrito though. <laughs> Gee whiz, that is that is really stretching. Now, a bit more serious in the Olympic front is Madeline Groves, who's decided not to compete at the upcoming Olympics on the basis of misogynistic perverts in the sport and their bootlickers, I quote. And she also said, you can no longer exploit young women and girls, body shame or medically gaslight them and then expect them to represent you so you can earn your annual bonus times up. Olympics only come around every four years. She was a two-time silver medalist in the Olympics and a two-time Commonwealth gold in the pool. To be... Giving up this is a massive, massive stand. Now, I actually haven't seen anything this afternoon, but I know that there were actually talks. They were trying to talk this out to see whether she would still compete, which you're right. I mean, this is the absolute peak of a sport for any any athlete. So to give it up over something like that, which is a very, very serious issue. I mean, you can't, you can't sugarcoat it. You can't downplay it. It is way, way, way. Oh, better. and, you know, you take your hat off to her for putting her principles above her own success. Absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah, it's a big decision. So the Olympic qualifiers have been going on for the Aussies in the pool. Would you believe that Kate Campbell and Emily Seabom have both qualified for their fourth Olympic Games to join Liesl Jones with four in the pool for the ladies? Wow. Very impressive that is, effort. That is big for swimming. What'd you miss, mate? Well, I missed the Kangaroos and Giants playing out the first draw of the AFL season on Sunday, sadly. Disappointing. Didn't really expect this was going to be a great game or one that you'd even want to watch considering both of these teams aren't doing particularly well. But yeah, I wish I'd had the the wherewithal to chuck it on a bit late and kind of watch the fourth quarter unravel a bit. But uh, yeah, that was... A bit of a surprise. Yeah, yeah. There's been a few surprises. Yeah, how about yourself, Nath? Well, I missed the Eagles and the Tigers, which would have been a great game in the footy. But I have been watching between two and six hours of basketball every day since the NBA playoffs started. I am well and truly on the basketball bandwagon. So the AFL will be a bit light on for a while. No, fair enough. So, Stewie, let's get stuck into the basketball. And we'll start with the NBL. We now have grand finalists. And the first series, Melbourne United needed three games against South East Melbourne. But there's themes running through, aren't there? There's really themes right across the NBL and the NBA, and it's all about missed opportunities this week. Every single series that we're going to talk about, probably with the exception of maybe the Denver and Phoenix one, the teams will look back on particular situations and think we blew a massive opportunity to win this series. And there's, let's face it, there's been some chokes. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the first series we're going to talk about involves a really massive choke. Yeah, and in the NBA too, like the Bucks choked and then the very next day the 76ers said, hey, hold my beer. But we'll start with <laughs> Melbourne and South East Melbourne. So the first game, it just kind of felt like one of those boa constrictor games, didn't it? Melbourne United just kind of suffocated them slowly, slowly, five points, 10 points, 15 points. Whenever South East Melbourne showed signs of life, they just squeezed down a little bit more and pretty straightforward result really wasn't it it was one of those games where you just look at it as a whole and you just think yeah that's about right didn't really strike you nothing really unusual jumped out at you you just thought yeah melbourne united are probably that much of a better team yeah and it's exactly what i expected after southeast melbourne blue golden opportunity sticking on theme by not beating brisbane to get that third seed where they could have come to perth and and played a very undermanned wildcats 
But Landau was absolutely magnificent. 26 points on 10 of 14 shooting. Hobson was also very good. One of the best games he's probably played all season, actually. Well, I mean, his series, it just, yeah, it's it's blown me away. I mean, he his whole season really has just been on this crazy upward trajectory. He started off really slowly, looked like he didn't really so much fit in with Melbourne United at Maybe first. getting used to coming off the bench. Yeah, but then all of a sudden, he, yeah, he has. He's Peaking just, at the right he's time. He's exploded in the back half of the season. And sure enough, in commentary, Corey Homicide-Williams said that this is New Zealand, Scotty Hobson. Yeah. And he did kind of show that. Absolutely. Now, game two. Game two was a surprise. Southeast Melbourne had a very impressive win, it's got to be said. But... Landale, there's a theme here. So having great games in games one and three, he only had five points in 13 minutes in game two. And he had a lovely little alley-oop play with Peatling, but straight after that, he fouled out, basically, and, and that was it. Well, if you look at the minutes following that, I believe it was an 18-3 to or maybe even an 18-2 run by the Phoenix straight after the, the foul out by Landale. So even though he wasn't playing particularly well, you look at what he brings on the defensive end where he's obviously a really tall, long sort of body that, that gets in the way. In game three, I saw a ton of different times when Phoenix players would drive to the basket and Landale's just standing there with his hands up and they didn't know what to do. Man, so, yeah. so, yeah, him being off the court, even though he's had a pretty average game offensively, it really detracts from them defensively. Well, it really was the turning point, wasn't it? Because as you say, the Southeast Melbourne Phoenix went on that massive run. Creek showed a little bit more. I, I wondered if he shot enough in game one and if he was assertive enough in game one, but him, Sykes, and Wetzel, the third man up. Wetzel was absolutely fantastic most of the series, it's got to be said. And I, I guess one of the other real keys with that run was that the Phoenix were able to work sort of a really good inside-outside game. So after the foul out, there's no resistance at the rim. They're taken inside. They get some layups. All of a sudden, it opens up the shooters, and they're hitting three-pointers. So it's, you know, whether it's Kiefer Sykes or whether it was Isaiah Liafa, they're starting to hit these big shots. So that's that's kind of the big key. And and Creek stepped up too in game two and was much more assertive. And and I, one of my notes for game one was it was Creek shooting enough in game one. So they, they really stepped up to the plate. But the third man up was Yanni Wetzel, who was pretty good the whole series, it's got to be said. Really impressive. The funny thing with the Jock Landau thing, so the courtside reporter Joe Healy reported that during a stoppage, Vickerman said to Landau, okay, you're going in. And he said, are you sure? I've got four fouls. <laughs> and I can't remember if it was straight after then that he did get that fifth, but it was a gamble. And that's a bit of a theme as well. And we'll get to that shortly in the Wildcat series. But hey, hats off to Southeast Melbourne. I gave him no chance. And it was a very impressive victory, albeit with the help of Landau being off the court. And I mean, that was part of how many fouls were there in that game? 56? Yeah, I think it was 56. And you almost wonder if it was an overcorrection after the Wildcats Illawarra game the night before where Illawarra hardly got any fouls at all and hardly went to the line at all. It was hard to watch, wasn't it? Well, because I think they said on during that game, 34 was the league average across the season. So we're talking 22 above the league average. It was at times a little bit tough to watch, I must say. And it's really funny you say that because my f very first note for that game was, well, the bits between the free throws was entertaining. <laughs> Such that they were. And on that, Stewie, seven players had three fouls or more before it had even got to the halfway point of the third quarter. So we're in the bonus with six and a half minutes left. Yeah, it's yeah, it's tough to watch. But I suppose most of them were probably there. That's the thing. Like You're right, it was an overcorrection. But by the letter of the law, I guess they were being consistent both ways. you as shit as it is, you've kind of got to let it play. Yeah, well, I, I didn't think it was too one one way. That's that's fair. Mm. And then, as you say, that run really it sealed the game. Melbourne United didn't even have a field goal in the last six minutes. Yeah, that's that's horrific. Speaking of horrific, Cam Glidden. 
did not score a point in the entire series. Wow. Ryan Brokoff had, what, about 12, an 8, a 4, and a 0, I think yeah, you said? Yep, yeah, 8, 4, and nothing. So, I mean, he he was trending backwards as well. He wasn't even taking shots in Game 3. This is that former NBA player that everyone thought, hey, this could get them into a grand final or signing like this. Yep. How disappointing. Yeah, on, on both accounts. I mean, you know, Cam Glidden, again, this was supposed to be the, the perfect team for him. It's a team that would give him a green light to take shots and, and make shots sort of getting back to that almost all-NBL player that he was a few years back, and he just continually looks like a guy who's passed it. So it wasn't a great 350th for Goulding. He did have a lovely and one where he was twisting and turning all over the place on the lap. Was Goulding a bit passive in the whole series? Uh, or is it just being on the deep team? I think it's, it could be a little bit of both. I mean, he's, yeah, he certainly tried to pick his spots as far as I could tell, but that's the thing. I, I guess maybe the Phoenix game plan was to limit the amount of looks that Goulding gets. And I mean, you know, he is a guy that can consistently take and make difficult shots, but, you know, perhaps in this one, saw a couple of them miss and thought, right, let's get the ball down to Landale and let him do his job. And I mean, we saw in game three just how dominant Landale can be, especially given the situation and given how that game went and, obviously, the, the efficiency that he shot the ball with. And absolutely, we'll get there in two moments, but the end was the absolute best. So Creek kind of fulcrums Peatling in like a WWE-like move, and then the mics very clearly pick up afterwards, see you in game three, motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> so this will forever be known as the see you in game three, motherfuckers game. And hey, Southeast Melbourne started game three gangbusters. Terrific. It looked like the upset was on that Corey Williams picked. And, and it really should have been. I mean, we talked about the missed opportunities. This is a huge missed opportunity by the Phoenix. They had this game almost won in, yep. the, in the first half. And they let them hang around, hang around. Landau, absolutely magnificent once again, probably telling everyone, hey, I should have been shortlisted for that MVP. 27 points on 11 of 13 shooting. Three key threes in that first half, as you say, to keep Melbourne in striking distance. And that was the exact moment I was referring to. Yeah. It got to, yeah, I can't remember. I think it was like 30 to 12 or 30 to 14 or something like that. And they just leave Landale, who is, you know, a very, very proficient shooter from out there, especially straight away. They let him get those really good looks. And yeah, it just kept them within striking distance. Whereas if you make someone else beat you, potentially you give yourself a chance to open that lead up to 2025 and it's demoralizing and the mm. game is basically over. So, so I think they were up by 17 at one point and then they ended up losing that game. Yeah. And, and I don't normally watch the press conferences, but Simon Mitchell and, and Mitch Creek were absolutely dejected, as you would be coming so close to a grand final. These things are not easy to get to. Hmm. So I guess the question is, Stewie, and it's a question we've got to ask a few times, did South East Melbourne choke? Absolutely, they did. There's, there's no two ways about it. You've got a team that far down that early in the game. 10-minute quarters. And you do not put the foot on the throat and yep. finish them off. Yep. Yeah, by definition, that is a choke to me. I, I don't think there's any doubt. You could just tell Melbourne were going to run over the top of them and win, couldn't you? It was just in the tea leaves. Yeah. Well, as, a, as I say, when Landale hit those three big threes, that was the moment where you just thought the Phoenix are going to blow this. They just they haven't put enough room between themselves and they've given Melbourne a chance. And You, you know, can't give the best team in the competition a sniff. Can't give them hope. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You just can't do it. Yeah. And, and I must admit, I was thinking, oh, maybe it's not a choke. You know, it is the 1v4. Melbourne did win a lot more games. But the way they failed to protect the ball at the end and were just throwing away passes when the game was still there to be won. Yeah. Yes, they were down, but they could have. They could have still won that game. Well, yeah, Ruben and Tur they absolutely choked. Ruben Tarangi was hit 
hitting big threes left, right, and well, center. Well, he finally turned up. He was yeah. very quiet in those first two games. So, yeah, you're right. Those turnovers, there were two in a row where they threw horrible cross-court passes that led to steals and layups. You just can't do that. Yeah. So, Perth, Illawarra, Perth 1-3, in three, as I predicted. Well, you well, weren't as <laughs> power-negative thinking? Well, no, no, definitely not. You, I, you I legitimately just, thought Illawarra were going to win the I series? just legitimately did, and especially after game one. It just well, yeah, let's sp- talk about game yeah. one. So, it was one of those classic games. So, we've talked about a boa constrictor game. This is one of those classic games where they just let them hang around, hang around. Like, I don't think Perth choked, but they let them hang around, hang around, and they exploded in the third quarter. And third quarters have been a big trend in the NBL playoffs so far, and they'll probably continue to be into the grand final. Justin Simon was absolutely spectacular in the third quarter for Illawarra, and particularly in the second half. Probably the MVP of the series for them in a losing effort. Yeah, I think absolutely right there. I mean, if you look at the two key players, Tyler Harvey, who was in the MVP voting, and Justinian Jessup, they both shot the ball incredibly poorly. We'll get to their numbers in a second. Yeah, Simon's efforts on both ends, I thought his defense was was pretty decent for the, the most part. And look, I mean, he, he doesn't have a decent jump shot. There's no two ways about it. But He's there for defense, energy, dunks, that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, he, he gets in there and play, puts his little floaters in. He, yep. he knows his game pretty well. Speaking of floaters, where were Harvey's floaters? We were talking about them all season. I can't remember very many at all in this series. There was a handful, but yeah, certainly not. Maybe it's because they weren't dropping. This this is true, yeah. And I, I actually noticed a couple of times he was taking them from a bit further out. There were a couple of them that looked like they were sort of almost beyond the, the free throw line. And, you know, he's he's good from that free throw line just inside, but longer than that, I mean, you, you just don't need to be taking those shots. So. so Illawarra would have been absolutely licking their lips after that game one, winning in Perth for only the second time in a hell of a lot of tries. They said the record was like 8-49 and 49 overall or something yeah, absolutely I think ridiculous. I think it was their second in like 36 games. Yeah, and granted that both of those were without Bryce, but Bryce is out the whole series. And, and they would have been thinking, all right, we've got this in the bag. Because with Perth, you were thinking, who the hell is going to score down the stretch? And that's well, the whole game. That's exactly my one key note from game one. It just, the whole time, every time coming down the court, it was like, who is going to be the one to make a shot here? You felt like if it wasn't Mooney or Blanchfield, it wasn't going to happen. Yep. And, and I think, you know, the Hawks defense kind of pushed in a little bit on that. Mooney didn't shoot the ball well in game one. I think it was five of 17. So... Yeah, and he's not going to create his own shot either. So someone has to create for him. Exactly. So yeah, I, I think you're very right. That was very much a theme, and that was why after game one, I said to you, I, I said we're going to get swept here. And we recorded on the Saturday for an upcoming special that we'll upload in the future. But we finished just in time for game two, and I was like, Nah, we got this, mate. I'm still confident. We're still going to win this series, and. It was very close. So the 31-28 halftime score was the lowest combined halftime score in the entire NBL this season. Real arm wrestle, real scrap. Well, it was the sort of game that the Wildcats had to play to stay in the series. I mean, I said to you before the start of the series and, and while we were recording with, with Alex Loughton, we said, this is going to be a scrappy series. The Wildcats need to play this in the 70s. The Hawks will probably want to play it there as well, but we need to keep this a very, very low game yep. in order to, to sort of stay in it. it. It was ugly. There's no two ways about it. Without Bryce Cotton being able to make his own shot, draw a lot of the defenders away from guys like Blanchfield and Clint Steindl, it makes it a lot tougher for them. But I think, funnily enough, the big turning point in game two, and it, and it seems laughable saying this, but the big turning point in game two was... Mitch Norton's injury. Yeah, so Mitch got banged up and it was looking really shaky for the Wildcats then with both starting guards potentially out. He did come back. But what it meant was that Luke Travers then came into the game and kind of ran the show as as the point guard on the offensive end, but on the defensive end as well. 
they shifted him onto Tyler Harvey. And Harvey had hit some shots. I think he ended up, would have been five or six three-pointers that he hit in that second game. But Travers was making it a lot more difficult for him. And, and admittedly as well, I think a lot of those points were probably against Kevin White. It just seemed like whenever Travers was on him, it was it was difficult for him to get shots up. He was, he was blowing by him at the top of the key, I found. Like that's, that's maybe a weak part in Travers' game. Guys, Justin Simon blew by him at the top as well a few times. And, th- and that is a missed opportunity. I yeah. think they should have been involving him in pick and rolls, getting him on to guys like Simon who could just, yeah, as you say, blow by him pretty easily and finish at the cup, which is something that, that Harvey can do, but Simon does better. I like Travers in the back playing the passing lanes a bit. So in the back of the zone or defending a guy in the corner and then he can play those passing lanes. But offensively, he was absolutely magnificent. The third youngest player behind Sam McKinnon and Frank Drimmick to have a playoff double-double. And that layup behind the basket wasn't quite Dr. J circa 1980 NBA Finals, but fantastic. Absolutely very, fantastic. Very, very tough angle on that one. And at a very key point in the game as well. So, yeah, look, that was a, a very unexpected win, I will say. What else was unexpected was Travis playing point guard a lot. Yep. Now, he's not protecting the ball enough. He is throwing, I guess you got to live and die with that youthful exuberance. He was throwing a few kind of cross-court passes that got picked off and some of the decision-making was a little bit off. But geez, the, the good was better than the bad in that game, that's for sure. And, and we also got to see a nice little cameo from Clint Steindl. He had some really, really key buckets off the bench, which you know, we haven't really seen a heap of this season. So I dare say he, yeah, was, played well. he was probably one of the, the, the big reasons that we won as well. So yeah, it's... Uh, I say it was an absolutely fascinating game to watch and, and yeah, just really unexpected. Froling picked the worst possible time to have a shocker with AJ Ogilvy in really bad foul trouble. What about the free throw disparity? Should the Hawks feel aggrieved, especially at home? Or is it because they weren't taking it to the rack enough? I mean, this is the thing. When you're such a a huge three-point team, you're not going to get many foul shots. There's not many guys that are going to hit you on those jump shots. I mean, probably more guys in the NBL than the NBA, you would suggest. Although the NBA, I guess a lot of guys are getting to the line from kicking out the leg and yeah. jumping into players. Yeah, well, Bryce does that too. That's but right. yeah, exactly. So does Blanchfield, actually. This is true. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, you could probably look at it that way, but I mean, you've got to take the ball to the basket. You, if you take it in and force the umpires to make calls that's when you're going to get to the line. You're not going to get it if you're taking as many threes as Jessup and Harvey took. And, you know, that's the result. You you have to live and die by the three. So we'll finish this one with a crazy stat. It was the fifth playoff game in a row involving the Wildcats where the road team won. Yeah, right. Thanks to NBL Facts, often quoting their Twitter feed. Game three. That changed. Wildcats got a good win. And you were there, mate. So I'll throw to you, first of all. Yeah, this was another really, really interesting one. It it looked potentially like the Wildcats might have actually blown a huge opportunity in this one. I mean, started off fairly slow. I think the the Hawks ended up at 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 about a 9-4 lead early in the game. But, I mean, the Wildcats just clamped down. The Hawks couldn't make a shot. Now, here's another key moment, Stewie. Gorgian kept Harvey on the court with three fouls. And sure enough, with just like 30 seconds left, he got his fourth. When you're only allowed five. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a particularly smart move. It might have been one of those all-in moments where he sort of thought, right, let's, you know, let's see if we can get a couple back. Because the lead had started to balloon a little bit. No, it's still a it's still a poor decision for mine. Hmm. Well, as we saw what happened, obviously. And speaking of Harvey, how is this for a damning stat? So him and Jessup, in all three first halves combined, 18 points. Yeah, it's not. 
Not good at all. That is, is terrible. <laughs> Six a game. Wow. Terrible. And that's combined. Yeah. So Harvey for the series, 17 of 55 at 31%. And Jessup wasn't much better. Well, 11 of 35. I think he was about 31%. Well, there you well. go. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. So you've mentioned halftime. Something funny actually did happen at halftime in game three. So I decided, yeah, it's getting towards that, that sort of time when the third quarter was going to start. Quickly ran off, went to the bathroom, came back, and ended up in a slightly different seat to the seat that I was in in the first half. This happens. You know me, though. I'm pretty big on superstitions. <laughs> and sure enough, sitting there and three or four minutes into the third quarter, the lead had gone from 16 down to two. Oh, yeah. Perth gave away that lead in a blink of an eye, it felt like. And I said to the guys that had swapped with me, I said, no. Nah, Move back. We've got to move back. This is something's happened. I've upset the universe here. <laughs> and sure enough, we move back. And over the next minute and a half, we go on a 7-0 run. So Wildcats fans will be very concerned with where Stewie sits for the grand final Absolutely. series. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I will move if I have to. So, yeah, it was. it's kind of interesting, those little things that happened during the game. And Yeah. I mean, it, it was... It was a pretty nervous second half and there were little bits and pieces throughout the, the second half where you sort of felt like the Hawks were just hanging in there. You know, key three-pointers. Jessup finally hit a three towards the end of the game. Oh, it was a classic game three. It was great. There was, you know, balls getting knocked up, like Mitch Norton bringing the ball up and Simon knocking it off his leg. There was that huge hustle play. I think that was Jessup as well, where he's knocked the ball towards the baseline, dived and knocked it back into Simon for a layup. So all of these signs and you thought, hmm, it just feels like the Hawks are going to run over the top. And then Nordo, doing his Willis Reed impersonation, dived on the court to get that loose ball. What an amazing effort. He, he was MVP of the game and the difference, wasn't he? And we didn't even think he would play. Yeah, well, it, it didn't look like he would. He was going to be much of a factor. But yeah, he did play incredibly well. Had a very, very key three-point play sort of down the stretch. But unfortunately for him, he's not the, the guy that made the key play. Oh, the, Fantastic. The absolute key moment in this game. Just when everyone thought he was having a shocker. Luke Travers. Yep. He uh, didn't have as, as good a game three as a game two, but yeah, this one was huge. Yeah, about a minute to go. It's a four-point game. Justin Simon takes it to the basket. Travers gets a little piece of the layup, and a lot of guys are thinking, right, he's got the ball, hold it up, run some clock. Yep. And he puts the ball down. And he just puts his head down. And he puts it down explodes. again. Explodes. And after that second dribble, I'm sitting directly behind the the basket that he's heading away from. And I start yelling out, dunk it, dunk it, dunk it. And he just oh, man. threw one oh, down. Oh, it was huge. And the place exploded. You can't even really hear it on the, the actual footage, footage, the video footage. Yeah. The place was just going off. And then about 30 seconds later, Jesse Wagstaff draws a charge. I managed to see Damien Martin standing about 10 feet away from me and I yell out to him, Damo, you taught him that. <laughs> and he looks up and smiles and thumbs up. He says, oh, I think that, that might have been his that might have been his own sort of way of taking a charge. Uh, Damo's, Damo wearing the Travis wig was pretty funny pre-game yes, as well. Yes, but no, look, a, a, look, a great series. and You, know, you and I had very different experiences. I actually missed the game live. Yet another closeout game three semifinal where I've missed live. I managed to avoid the result, came and watched it when I got home. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most people would look at the scores and go, oh, that's probably a pretty ugly series. But Well, funny you say that. First time ever in NBL history that all three games, neither team scored 80. There you go. Wildcats scored 79 twice, but yeah. But it's it's one of those really good old school arm wrestle sort of games. And as a purist, I don't mind the bad shooting percentages if I get to see games like that. Oh, yeah. Finals. Final stuff. So I guess that leads us to the grand final. Melbourne United and Perth. Yep. After 168 games, regular season and semis included, the Wildcats are into their ninth grand final in 12. It is absolutely staggering. 
tremendous effort. I'll pick United in four. Yeah, I want to agree with you. I, I mean, for me, I, I just feel like Melbourne United are too deep, and especially when you look at the bench. Scotty Hobson has absolutely hit peak Hobson form right now. Luala Chul is an absolute handful down low, one of the tallest blokes in, in the NBL, but he's got that agility. Yudai Barber seems to like playing us. He does, but no Bryce Cotton, and he's the one that he always kills. True. But- and Blanchfield has not played well against Melbourne either, and Blanchfield has been the star Perth has needed to get over the top. It pains me to say this, but I'm going to pick United in three. So even though the first two games are in Perth, and thankfully I secured a ticket to game two, unfortunately you can't go for family reasons, but you'll be at home watching with the girls, indoctrinating them. Probably screaming and yeah, <laughs> Hopefully yeah. sitting in the right chair. Yelling you know, yelling profanities at the wall and stuff. But so no. you're not prepared to give the Wildcats one at all, even though Melbourne couldn't sweep the Phoenix? No. No? I can't do it. As, okay. much, as, as much as I want to, I, I just I can't see... A reality where over 40 minutes, Chris Goulding doesn't hit two or three massive threes. Jock Landale doesn't dominate inside like he did the last time they came to Perth. I yeah, I, I think there's going to be close games, but I just can't see. I can't see Perth getting over the top. I Perth need Magnate to produce to have any chance, and they need they they pretty much need everything to go right. Yeah, where would this rate if it was a Perth win and a three peat? This would be the sweetest of all by yeah. by far. Yeah, it's, it's not even close. Yep. So I haven't done my research, but I was kind of shortlisting it in my mind. So I was thinking, okay, the first one is always sweet. That one when we beat... I'm talking as a fan now. Yeah, we've got it. <laughs> that one where we beat New Zealand after they'd beaten us a couple of times was pretty big. Yep. That one in 95 where we dropped game one at home and then went into North Melbourne and beat them on the road. In the glass the, house, yeah. Yeah, the famous Chris Gent punching Andrew Vlahoff in the knee game. <laughs> And then Perth came home and absolutely destroyed them in game three. They're kind of the ones that come to mind, but I agree. If the Wildcats won this one, it would be the sweetest of all, without, without question. Without the most valuable. And we'll, we'll talk about the award winners next week. We don't have the time. Absolutely, yeah. We do not have time. But yeah. yeah, to win it without the MVP of the league, it, that would just be so much sweeter than everything. It, it would be a choke on Melbourne's part, I think. Yep. Yeah. Quite possibly. So, Shui, there are absolutely some common threads that connect the NBL and NBA this week, as we've said. Just as the Wildcats let Illawarra hang around in Game 1 to allow them to win, so too did the 76ers allow the Hawks back into Game 4. Just as South East Melbourne Phoenix choked away Game 3 of their semi, so too the Bucks and 76ers in their Game 5s, respectively. Basketball and sport in general is really a game of runs and momentum. It's all about what you do when you're going well. Are you maximising it when you're going well? Are you minimising the damage when you're going poorly? These games will swing back and forth. No lead seems safe. But we've got to start with maybe a little surprise. Phoenix sweeping Denver. Certainly for me, the amount of games was a huge surprise. I don't think anyone would have picked Phoenix in a sweep. I definitely had had them winning the series. But geez, yeah, uh, an absolutely clinical performance by the Suns. And probably for me, they are the most exciting team to be watching right now. So I guess we'll we'll get there in a sec. And there's big stories there with Chris Paul too. Mm. So the Nuggets have fallen, but we've got to talk about the MVP briefly. Jokic was absolutely humble and very brief in his acceptance speech. Just the fifth center to win MVP in the last 40 years. Just the third player to be top five in points, rebounds and assists in a season. And the stats, the stats are huge. I mean, he had what, 32, 20 and 10 in that game as well. Yep, just the third player to have a 30, 20, 10 in playoff games behind Wilt Chamberlain in 67 and Abdul Jabbar in 1970. But to me, it's the eye test. It's the things he does on the court. So it's funny, I showed you a tweet with a person the other week that had a speech bubble saying, there's no way Jokic deserves MVP. And then in the brain, it said, 
I've never seen Jokic play. Mm. And eye test is so important here. So there's a couple of really key moments in game three I want to talk about briefly. Not only is he the MVP, he's basically a point center. He's the PC MVP with great basketball IQ and decent D. Are you, are you writing an ad for him? It's <laughs> <laughs> like your little like Jokic jingle. <laughs> My Jokic jingle. Jokic jingle, yeah. <laughs> but it's just his passing, which is just so impressive. So you'd think that when a guy is open, you hit him straight away, right? Well, yeah, I'll tell you two instances where Jokic pinpoint time the pass just magnificently. So there was one, I think it was Cam Johnson, where Cam Johnson's come to double. He spotted someone in the corner. Rather than pass it to them straight away, he's waited for Johnson to land. Then he's thrown the pass at the exact moment where he knows that the shot will go up, where Johnson will have to expend energy to go and contest it, but he won't get there in time to block it. There was another one, guy in the corner, doesn't throw the pass until Aaron Gordon gets into a rebounding position. It's just that stuff that, that just comes naturally to him, which is magnificent. But the, the one that was the best of all, he control tapped a rebound three times and then threw a no-look pass to Barton under the rim for a dunk. It was Magic Johnson-like. And this is a seven-footer we're talking about. Yeah. He is just such a pleasure to watch. And people will say, well, hold on, they got swept. How the hell can he be the MVP if his team didn't even win a game in the second round? Well, that's the thing. But he's missing a very, very big co-star. He's missing Jamal Murray. And we have to speak about, very quickly, the curse of the MVP. I mean, if you look all the way back to the year after Shaquille O'Neal won it in 2000, since that point, to the past 21 seasons, only Tim Duncan in 2003, LeBron James in 2012 and 13, and Steph Curry in 2015 have actually won a championship and an MVP. Yeah, it's hard to do. Most guys that win it do not make even the finals, let alone win it. And we all know how good Jamal Murray was in the bubble last year in the playoffs. So that was a big player to be missing. Yeah. Big player. And Barton came back in game three and he provided some really good help for them, but it just wasn't enough. Well, I suppose what we should do is talk about a couple of the players for Denver that really kind of let them down. I mean, the the first one, I guess, and there's a really, really good correlation between Michael Porter Jr.'s performances and Denver's performances in the playoffs in particular. So Denver went four wins and six losses in the playoffs in their two series. In their four wins, they shot 46.5% from three. Michael Porter Jr. shot it at 53.5%. Nice. Impressive. Yeah. In their six losses, the Nuggets shot 33% and Porter Jr. was at 31%. And I've got some eye test stuff on Porter too. So, yes, he'll have some steals in the box score across the games, but his D really let them down, particularly in game three. He overcommits. He goes for steals when he should be defending a guy. I'll I'll take a guy playing solid one-on-one D and not letting their man pass them over maybe one or two steals every game of the week. The other the other thing that really bothers me with him is he remonstrates and gets pissed off when there isn't a foul. So there was one where it was basically a four on five because he stayed back bitching to the refs and he was still bitching to the refs when the ball came back down the other side of the court. So not only did he not play defense on one possession, he basically didn't play offense on the next possession. And I know we've talked about guys like Jokic and Doncic complaining to the refs, but at least they do it at the right time. They do it during a stoppage when it's not hurting their team as much. Yeah. He was really hurting the team on the defensive end. Now, I know the other one is going to be Aaron Gordon, and I defended him on eye-test grounds in the first series, but I cannot defend the indefensible. He was very poor in the second round. Yeah, like I know that stats aren't everything, but they're also not nothing. No. And if you look at his series, nine points a game, only 3.8 rebounds a game. Now, to put that into perspective, Chris Paul averaged more rebounds than that. Yeah. JaVale McGee played 27 total minutes in the series and averaged more than that. Yeah. 
So really for a guy who came in there as this, this is going to be the missing piece in the puzzle. Now, again, we know there's no Jamal Murray, but this was a great opportunity for Gordon to step in and step up and start putting up some big numbers. He should have been averaging 17 and eight in that series. He slumped at the wrong time. I tell you what, I reckon he must have broken a mirror while walking under a ladder and holding a black cat. Because every 50-50 call went against him. When he finally did get a lob, it was ever so slightly out of his hands. He just could not catch a break in that series. There's kind of a weird parallel between him and Will Magna at the moment. Definitely. Absolutely there is. Like, That's a very, very good analogy. Like yeah. guys expected to be that missing piece on a team challenging for a championship. Big man. Playing with a team where their star player is injured or one of their star players is injured not really at the level expected. It's, it's, yeah, it's interesting. Probably the only difference is that Perth won their semi-final. Yes, yeah. Denver yep. lost it. Yeah. I'm very annoyed that Jokic got ejected in game four when the game was on the line. And I, quite frankly, I think it was absolutely bullshit. He swiped down on the ball against a much smaller campaign, grazed his nose, which hurt him, but he got 99% ball. I can't believe he got thrown out yeah, it's- after remonstrating with Booker. That's a, a flagrant one every day of the week. How many MVPs get thrown out in a playoff game? Would that have happened to LeBron, Durant? It's, but- a, it's a joke. No one's, yeah. I don't think many people are going to try and tell you that it was a, a flagrant two. It was a joke. So Chris Paul's tested positive for COVID, even though he has the vaccine. Hang on, hang on. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's talk about how good Chris Paul was in this series first. Oh, he was magnificent. Okay. He was magnificent. So I'm running through his stats. 25 and a half points a game, 10.3 assists a game, 62.7% from the field, 75% from three, and a total of five turnovers over the four games. Oh, yeah. His assist to turnover ratio was magnificent. More than eight to one. Yep. Eight to one. Yeah. And great eye test stuff too. Yeah. Like he he was, I saw three of the four games in this series. He was fantastic. Do you know, he actually tied a record, a, a really random one as well, because he's quite a good three-point shooter. So in game four, he had 37 points without a three-pointer. That ties the record with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar for the most points in a playoff game by someone over 36 years of age. Yes, I saw that. Without a single three-pointer. Yeah. And all of that in his first ever series sweep. Well, yeah, really? Yep. There you go. Not a single sweep in his career until then. He, his mid-range, I mean, they, obviously we, we refer to him as the mid-range maestro. Everyone does. He was just- Tearing them apart. Unstoppable. Yeah. Get through that pick and roll. He'd get Jokic involved and he had his way with him. It was amazing. Booker had 81 in the closeout game so far in the first two rounds. Only Jordan has had more in the first two series in 1989 and 1992. And boy, are they peaking at the right time, the Phoenix Suns. As a team, and I'll round up here with the point fives, but they shot 52 from field, 43 from the three-point line, and 90 from free-throw line. Pretty. As decent. a team, they had a 50-40-90. Pretty decent. Wow. Do you know the funny thing, though? What's actually even more impressive for me is their defense. They rank number one in the playoffs for points allowed per game, opponent field goals made per game, opponent field goal percentage, and opponent three-point percentage. Yep. They are the best defensive team in the playoffs right now. And they've been the best team since the shutdown last season, mm. including the bubble. Yep. And why not Phoenix? They're kind of bucking the conventional wisdom that you need to have a heartbreak before you win a championship. This team absolutely could win a championship. 
Well, their heartbreak was that they won out in the bubble last year and, yeah, and still missed didn't out. get to play in the yeah. playoffs. So that's, yeah. that's a pretty decent heartbreak to go through. Yeah, yep. yeah, you, yeah. I mean, absolutely, why not them? They've got everyone playing the right roles. I mentioned Jay Crowder. He's playing out of his yes. skin right yeah, now. Yeah, he's magnificent. You know, campaign, as you mentioned, has had a superb playoff so far. Mikel Bridges is shooting the ball really well. Cam Johnson's playing his part. Aiton, yep. They're, they're all just doing such a great job. And I'll tell you what, Monty Williams... He is absolutely the coach of the year for me. I, I just don't see how anyone is outcoached him this year. Yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. So we'll look at the the Chris Paul stuff as that unfolds. That's fairly new news. That one. Where do you want to go next? Well, look, we'll spend a little bit less time on the other three series because they're not finished yet. But look, we've got to go to Brooklyn. Oh yes, I mean Brooklyn and Milwaukee. So. Game five finished yesterday. Brooklyn won in an absolute cracker of a game, a game that they had no right in winning. Absolutely not. No Kyrie Irving, about 10% of James Harden. Oh, look, I'll, I'll dispute the 10% thing a little bit. There has been a lot of commentary speaking as if he was playing on two crutches and going to the sidelines for the old Christopher Scase ventilator. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> like, he was fairly mobile. He was getting up and down the court. The, the thing to me was that they just weren't testing him enough. So Budenholzer said all the right things in the quarter time interview that they were going to attack him, but they just didn't. And and I think that the key to show that he was underdone was that he did, he wasn't driving much. So he took it to the rack, I think, once in the first half, and that was right near the end of the first half, maybe three times for the whole game. One was fairly weak. So he was clearly underdone, mm. but I don't think he was as bad as some people are saying. What did he shoot from the field? Oh, yeah, he shot poorly. He, what, he was what, basically playing decoy. What, what did he shoot from the he field? He shot one of 10. What's that as a percentage? Uh, it's 10%. 10%. Yeah, but he wasn't playing 10%. But yeah, yeah. He, 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 he's, I'll tell you what. He, he, <laughs> he wouldn't have played the minutes he played if he was at 10% no, physical capacity. No. And and he was playing decoy out there. And the Bucks, the Bucks blew a golden opportunity. There's no other way to put but this, it. But this does fall back on Budenholzer. Absolutely. This is, I mean, he's a great coach, but this is probably... Oh, I don't know if he is anymore. I've well, been defending no, no, him. No, no, no. He, he, is a, he is a very good coach, but this is one of the worst coach games you could imagine. There were no adjustments made. We'll talk about Durant in a second, but when he started going off, I mean, they had a big lead early. It was 17 points. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. They made no adjustments. You put Giannis on him. You make a, you make him shoot over a taller player. Absolutely. You, you put Harden in pick and rolls. You make him defend. If he ends up on Giannis on the other end, you back him down and you dunk on his head. You just expose him. And you're right. They were up 16 at halftime and the TNT crew, Charles and Kenny particularly, were absolutely pillaring them. They were saying they should be up 20 to 24. And I agree. They just, this Milwaukee team does not have the killer instinct. And if they don't win the championship, I think Buttonholzer gets gets fired. Absolutely. I reckon he does. Yeah. I mean- and probably justifiably so. There's no way they should have let this game go. It was a monumental choke. Monumental. And that does take a little bit away from Kevin Durant, who had an all-timer. There's no doubt. Like, Kevin Durant in beast mode is a thing to behold. He was magnificent, and he was switched on. It was like he just remembered that he's the most talented offensive player in the world. Oh, he was he was fantastic. Fantastic. Like, I had absolutely no interest. When I saw the game was 17 points, I put my phone down. I thought, no, I'm not not even going to follow this because I'm at work. It doesn't matter. And then all of a sudden, I get a message from you saying, geez, barn burner in Brooklyn. Yeah. I thought, what are you talking about? Yeah. Chucked it on. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Brooklyn are in front. What? Yeah. So, and, I watched, and it's it interesting bit. to reflect. So, when I looked at it at work, looking at the box score and everything, I thought, oh yeah, Durant's had an all timer. But when you actually watch the game, you're like, Milwaukee blew this big time, hmm. big time. 
It's, wow. Yeah. If I was one of their fans, I would not be happy at all. You have to say probably the biggest thing that sucked from this game was Durant missing that free throw that would have given him 50. Yes. That, yeah. that to me, was, was the real disappointment. But here's the thing, and this is what makes this game so crazy. Have a guess how many guys played in all 48 minutes of a non-overtime game this season. I wouldn't be surprised if you said zero. One. Okay. Kevin Durant. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so yep. he was the only guy to play. And to put a guy who did his Achilles in the 2019 NBA Finals, to put him through 48 minutes in a game where they're basically saying, we're, we're going all in on this. Because if we lose this, oh yeah, it's going to be hard to win the series. Yep. And, and it's got to be said, that Kyrie injury in game three did not look good. No. It, that looked serious. That looked like it could, but maybe, maybe not the whole series, like the whole. Oh, rest, I think so. the, the round. The, no, the whole rest of the playoffs. Yeah. but yeah, certainly this round, I don't expect to see him back. No, definitely so, not. So definitely not. And it's got to be said, Milwaukee had a chance. Like, it was still only a two-point game with twenty odd seconds left. Middleton drove to the basket, basically gave a handoff to Janus, and it was one of those typical spent it before he had it. He had a dunk there, but he fumbled it out of bounds. It was a massive choke. Yeah. I can't believe it. Just one other thing I did want to quickly talk about in regards to, I guess, the adjustments that they failed to make. So when you've got a guy like Durant who's absolutely going off, James Harden's shooting like he's barely played basketball. Kyrie yep. Irving's not in the game. Yep. Even Harris didn't play particularly well. Joe Harris is 6 of 30 in his yeah. last three games. Yeah, okay. Bruce Brown doesn't look like the same player. No, he was, he, has, he was he was non... He's, he's been disappointing. A non-factor in game four. Why would you not run two guys at them and say, right, Joe Harris, make some shots? Absolutely. You know, you've got him and Jeff Green. Jeff Green, who we've got to very quickly give some props to. We did some predictions in terms of bold stuff. You know, what's going to happen in... Yep. He bo- every time he bobs up for at least one good game, every playoffs, doesn't matter what jersey he's wearing. And one of the bold predictions that you made, yeah. and I, we don't, I don't know if this actually made the cut, but you said that Jeff Green will pop up and have a big game. It didn't make the cut last year, but I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, yeah. 27 points on seven of eight three-pointers. Like he played huge minutes, made some massive shots. But yeah, no one else really did that much. Yeah. So here's a thought. Make someone else beat you. Yep. And Put Janus on Durant, double Durant. Like, oh, man, the coaching was poor. Like, like, Charles called them the dumbest team in the playoffs. He might have even called them the dumbest team in the league. And he's still, this, get this, Chewy. He still picked them to win the championship. Well, the, well, do you know, the big thing, and, I, and I, I'll kind of stick up for, for Chuck here. The one big positive is that Budenholzer and the Bucks have got two days to sit there and read everything in the media and say, huh, you know what? Maybe we should put Giannis on KD. And maybe we should watch the footage of James Harden. Yeah, if James Harden he's is... He's not driving. If he's on Drew Holiday, Drew Holiday needs to take him to the basket. Absolutely. Or whatever the, whatever the go is. Yep. The other thing as well, though, that they need to work on, I guess, is their, their play calling down the stretch. 11 of their last 17 possessions in that game were ISO plays. Yeah, well, and and they weren't even ISOing the right defender, mm. James Harden. This is it. They're, they're, oh. they're going ISO at. I feel sorry quality. for Buck fans. Like I really do. Yeah, it's it's tough. I must admit, I can't see Brooklyn losing this series from here, even without Irving and even with Harden playing it. It'd be really interesting to see if Harden plays the next game. Has he done his Willis Reed? Has he played his decoy game? Give him a rest for game six. Well, I heard that Reggie Miller was saying, do they rest Harden and Durant for game six and go all in on game seven? I mean, how dumb would that be? I, I don't know. I, I love Reggie Miller, but that I, is, I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't rest Durant. You can't. Yeah, no, I wouldn't rest Durant. But Harden, I don't know, maybe. Maybe because, because maybe 
Nash will say, okay, we, we're playing with house money there. They didn't defend him properly. They'll definitely defend him properly in game six. So let's sit him game six. So they'll game plan for it. And then sure enough, he won't play. Oh. Could be a good strategy, but oh. not Durant. You've got to play Durant. I think you've got to start. You can hard. close this out. You've got to start hard and see what happens. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, he might still play well. Anyway, so I guess that leads us perfectly into Atlanta and Philly. You know, you've got one series that's nearly done there in the East and we've got another one that's... Oh, and like I said, Philly have said, oh, you choked Milwaukee? Hold our beer. Yeah. Because... <laughs> 26 point lead late in the third quarter of game five. And this is after another choking game four. You've got a crazy stat on that. So get this, Dewey. The 76ers are the only team to blow an 18 point lead in back to back playoff games in the last 25 seasons. And, and I've got to talk quickly about the end of game four. So it was a great fourth quarter. It seesawed back and forwards. Definitely worth watching. Atlanta gave the 76ers a shot with just 16 seconds left and only a point up. I can't believe this, though. The 76ers had a chance to tie the game and send it into OT. Now, neither team had timeouts left, but Atlanta were all defending behind the three-point line. No one was above the three-point arc, and the 76ers didn't get a shot off. They didn't even get a shot off. They rolled out the red carpet for them. Like... Oh, my God. This is a comedy of errors. And then today. You feel bad for Bucks fans. I am, oh, man. And, and we've got to talk about Ben Simmons, too. Yeah, well, I mean, it's the Australian elephant in the room, unfortunately. Ben Simmons had a really good series against Washington, but for the most part, he's been a liability in this series. He's been non-existent. Like, you can't keep him on the floor with his foul shooting. He is 12 of 39 in woeful. the series. 31%. Absolutely woeful. How can you have a guy on the court play 38 minutes and only register four field goal attempts? Do you know Shake Milton and George Hill had five? Yeah. And well, if it weren't for Seth Curry, they probably would have lost by 30. Yeah. I hate to say it, but is Ben Simmons actually overrated? How's this, Joey? You wondered if Tobias Harris was their second best player rather than Ben. Tobias Harris had a shocker today too. Mm. So they got nothing out of two of their three stars. And poor Embiid's playing on a torn meniscus in his knee. And he is doing everything he can. Don't avoid the question, Nate. Is Ben Simmons overrated? Well, no, because his stocks have dropped dramatically. That's the only reason why he's not. Mm. But here, have we have we thought the wrong thing about Ben Simmons? Is he more of a kind of Rudy Gobert, where he's more of a defender and an elite passer with great IQ? You know, do we need to think of him as like a Ben Wallace small forward kind of player? You know, you're going to get elite defense out of him. You're going to get great passing out of him. You just can't rely on him to score. I mean, Ben Wallace has, has been shortlisted for the Hall of Fame next season. He's probably got a career point per game average of about five. Yeah. So that's so a, maybe we need to look at him in that view. It's a good point, actually. I dare say that's actually probably a better way of, of looking at it. The thing is, though, like he's got the handle. He's got the ability to, to do things. But until he can shoot free throws, yep. you know, th- this is the thing. With Shaq, you could leave him in the game because... You try and foul him and he'd still dunk on your head. Yeah. Well, there are a couple of seasons there where even Shaq had to be subbed out, but they had Kobe to close. That's the thing. But but this is the thing. You can't do that with Ben Simmons. And seeing him sitting on the bench as one of the two franchise players in a one-point game in the fourth quarter, it's a horrible look. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I just... I've heard a lot of people say that Philadelphia will not and cannot win a championship with Ben Simmons on the roster. And I hate to say it, but I think they're right. Well, he's only 24... But you wonder if if this is the Ben Simmons we've got. And like I said, maybe we need to reevaluate his role. He's still very important defensively. Hey, 
He'll play the first 35 minutes of the game. Maybe that's the role he needs. Mm. But Doc Rivers, I'll tell you what, he has coached the wrong team on the wrong side of a lot of playoff chokes. A lot. Yeah. Including last season with the Clippers. So, crikey. Yeah. And look, hats off to the Hawks. You know, we, we're very quick to focus on the negatives in terms of what the Sixers are doing. Yeah, no, Trey Young has been magnificent. His poise and his ability to read the play and, and just, just how well he's played in his first playoffs has blown me away. I, I can't believe just, yeah, how good he looks for a guy that young. Youngest player with 25-plus points and 15-plus assists in a playoff game. And I think the first guy to do that since Tim Hardaway in about 1991. So, look, he's had a, a really, really great series. His floater game is going, like, they're running him off those three-pointers. Yep. And he's he's taking what the defense is giving him. He's getting into the lane. He's shooting his floaters. I've even seen a couple of mid-range jumpers from him, which is yep. something that is almost unheard of with Trey Young. But, yeah, he makes the right passes. He's getting guys involved. And the thing is, they won today, like, you know, some of these guys, like Kevin Herter had a donut on, like, yeah, okay. you know, on pretty poor shooting. Gallinari and, and you know, to a lesser extent, Bogdanovich haven't shot the ball amazingly. Lou Williams was the secondary hero today. He's a plus minus of plus 31 in about 22 minutes. <laughs> 15 points. He, he Again, he was great instant offense off the bench. But Now they can go home and try and close it out in six? Yeah, they've got a, a really, really good opportunity. And I dare say if they get through and Brooklyn get through, Atlanta might just win the East. Well, just like we said, Phoenix, why not? Why not Atlanta? I don't know if Atlanta can win the championship, but they could win the East. Uh, who knows? Anything. Anything just, can happen. Yeah, There's no. so many injuries. Should we move on to the next series? We have to, yeah. Kawhi Leonard might be out for the playoffs now. Yep. And then in spite of that, playoff P actually turned up. He yeah. won in Utah. Yeah, no pandemic P. But they they lost a number of home games against Dallas in the first round. There's no guarantee they win game six at home. Mm. But look, to talk about quickly how important the Kawhi Leonard loss is, if you look at the fourth quarters, in the six wins that the Clippers have had in this playoff so far this year, he is currently 16 of 16 from the field. Hasn't yep. missed a single shot in the fourth quarter. Yep. Close out well. And he was perfect at the line until he missed two in their last win. So he's 11 of 13 from the free throw line as well. I think that might have even been the play where he got injured, was it? Where he missed those free throws. Uh, I, might have been, actually. I yeah. remember him grimacing and going to the foul line. Oh, look, I've watched so much in the last <laughs> week. It all blurs together. It, it all blurs it's yeah, it's just crazy, you know, losing a guy as clutch as that, and then all of a sudden Paul George has probably his best playoff game unquestionably. Of, his, of his career. Unquestionably. And definitely. And a lot of people will say, yeah, he, he's had better games in terms of points and all that sort of stuff. But look, the rebounding's huge. Like his rebounding is going to be massive over the next couple of games because yeah, yep. they can't go big. Every time Zubarch is in the game. They run him in, into a pick and roll. Yeah, you can burn him. Doncic was having him for breakfast yep. in the pick and, and roll in the Mitchell, first round. Yeah, Donovan Mitchell was doing, doing exactly the same. The same. Yeah. Do you know who's got the best plus minus on the Clippers right now in the playoffs? No. Nicholas Batum. Yeah, well, he's a very good defender and, and a handy player. Role players, people underestimate role players in the playoffs. They're so important. They are so important. This is the thing. So they've, they've had to go small ball because of this. Batum's doing a great job, but that's where the likes of Paul George. I mean, I think, when did he have 16 rebounds today? Something like that? Something like that, yeah. A huge amount Obviously, of Obviously, haven't had a chance to watch it yet because yeah. we're at work, but looking forward to watching that one. But he, he had a lot of rebounds. And when he does that, this is, this is when the Clippers win. They need to rebound by committee. You know, guys like Morris, guys like Paul George, Batum, obviously doing, doing a great job. That's where they're going to win. Utah need Conley back desperately. They do. Desperately. 
they're, they've been a different team without him. Yeah. So as always, we'll post our picks for the next series because they will happen before we record next. Yep. And now, this week in sport history. June 16th, 1909, Jim Thorpe makes his pro baseball pitching debut for Rocky Mount in a 4-2 win, which would ultimately cost him his Olympic gold medals from the 1912 Games in Stockholm. Back then, the amateur status was taken very seriously, and even though he wasn't competing in the baseball in the Olympics, it was deemed he was a professional athlete and was subsequently stripped. He won four of the five events in the pentathlon, including winning the 1,500 metres by five seconds. A week later, saw the start to the decathlon. He won the 100 metres on day one. The very next day, his shoes went missing. No one knows if they were stolen <laughs> oh, or wow. just lost. Insult to injury. So he won the high jump in mismatched shoes. Wow. He then won the 110 metre hurdles and was absolutely dominant in the 1,500 metres again, still wearing the mismatched shoes as well. Honestly, one of the greatest miscarriages of justice in sport to this day. Yeah, that's incredible. It really is. June 16th, 1975, in one of the worst trades in NBA history, the Milwaukee Bucks trade Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Walt Wesley to the LA Lakers for Elmore Smith, Brian Winters, Junior Bridgman and Dave Myers. The Lakers would win five championships with Kareem in the purple and gold, dominating the 1980s with the Boston Celtics. It wasn't all bad for the Bucks. They did win division titles in 1976 and then 1980 to 86, but they never really threatened for a championship until the past few seasons, although with Budenholzer under the helm, I would dispute that. Interesting fact about Junior Bridgman. He's worth about $600 million, that guy. What? Really? Yeah. He, he runs like a magazine empire. Oh, huh, good on him. He's like the second richest NBA player in history. The other interesting thing is Kareem actually wanted to go to New York. He was friends with Malcolm X. He'd converted to Islam. He was pushing for a trade to the Knicks. Can you imagine how different history would have been if he'd gone there? Potentially, yeah. Wow. June 17th, 1994, after a warrant was put out for his arrest for the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman, OJ Simpson doesn't turn himself in, instead leading the LA police on a chase along the freeway for an hour and a half before eventually giving up. Little known fact about this, and we have spoken off air about it, you were aware of it, but I, I actually yeah, wasn't. Yeah, I've seen the doco. I strongly recommend It's very graphic, but I strongly recommend it. Yeah, Simpson himself actually wasn't driving. It was actually his friend, former NFL player, Al Cowlings. Simpson was actually in the back. He was doing all sorts of things, including holding a gun to his own head. It was a really, really horrific video to watch. Yeah, he wanted to speak to his mum and basically say goodbye at that point. Yeah. The chase was seen by over 95 million people. It actually interrupted game five of the NBA finals between the Rockets and the Knicks as well, which is something a lot of people forget. Oh, people were lining up in the streets. They were on bridges, like oh, yeah. shaking placards. Holding up signs. Yeah. Oh, I cannot... I cannot recommend the documentary series enough. It's yeah. a lot of hours, but it's well worth it. That's it. We all know how it went, though. He was acquitted of the murders, being represented by a dream team of lawyers, including Robert Kardashian, who himself probably should be jailed for unleashing the Courtney, Kim and <laughs> Khloe Kardashian trio on the world. Oh, dear. Simpson would be later convicted of the wrongful death and battery of Ron Goldman and the battery of Nicole Brown Simpson, a horrible, horrible story. And Johnny Cochran, of course, was the lead lawyer on that one. And, of course, he also wrote a book called If I Did It, but it was never released. Do you know, I read something about that, actually. The if part was actually written so small that it looked like it said, I did it. Yeah. Confessions of oh, a killer. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's amazing. June 20th, 1949, tennis star Gussie Moran shocks Wimbledon by wearing a short dress to look good and move more freely on the court. Moran's outfit, which would be seen as conservative nowadays, was seen to have brought vulgarity and sin into tennis with her being castigated for, and I quote, having drawn attention to the sexual area. It saw Teddy Tinling, the designer of the dress and an official host of Wimbledon for the previous 23 years, 
asked to take a leave of his position with the next invite coming 33 years later. Moran was the fourth seed and was knocked out in the third round. Thank goodness that we don't live in an age where women are expected to still play in petticoats. It was, yeah, it was just nothing really. Like it was above her knees. And I think that was like, ooh, goodness. That's like the old Twiggy photos. Goodness gracious me, stop showing your ankles. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yes. What a week in sport. This week in sport history. So, Stewie, the French Open is in the books at Roland Garros, and we have a very impressive winner on the women's side. And on the men's side, well, he's top of the table now for titles after the age of 30. Yeah, geez, what an interesting tournament this was. Well, I actually wanted to start off with the lows. I kind of wanted to get them out the way early. So the first thing, it's a bit ridiculous, the introduction of the night sessions on Philippe Chatrier court during a global pandemic, the result of which was fans being ejected from the stadiums at about 11 p.m., this has to be one of the dumbest things that they could have possibly done in the middle of a, a tennis tournament, surely. So this is similar to what was happening at the Australian Open earlier in the year where people had to bugger off halfway through a match. Well, it's even worse than that. Like there was a quarterfinal between Novak Djokovic and Matteo Berrettini. There was a 20-minute delay because the fans were refusing to leave. Wow. Saying we've been ripped off, we've paid for these tickets, we yeah. should be able to watch the game. Gee. Uh, it's, it's just not great. I mean, it ruins the momentum for some of these players. Djokovic was well ahead in the game and he obviously subsequently went on and won it. But imagine if that had been a turning point in someone's match. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. We'll be hearing about that for years. Absolutely. And then we had the withdrawals as well. I mentioned it briefly last week, but Roger Federer pulled out after the third round. He'd won, but he said he needed to focus on Wimbledon and sort of keep his body in shape. He's playing in Hal right now, which is his usual lead-up tournament. Uh, Wimbledon kind of has to be the tournament that sees him announce his retirement, surely. It's certainly looking that way, isn't it? It's heading in that direction. I mean, you pull out of a major tournament that you are into the third round of, he's basically saying, I don't think I can win this. The only one I feel comfortable even having a chance at is my favourite court, which is Wimbledon. So... It's not looking great. I mean, Ash Barty withdrew halfway through her second round match with Magda Lynette as well. Not a great lead up to Wimbledon for her. Just going back to Federer for a quick second, though, with him withdrawing after the win, do you think the person that he beat in the third round, Dominic Kupfer, do you think he should get a reprieve and be able to play in the next round in place of Federer? I think it's a better spectacle, isn't it, to allow a lucky loser rather than just let someone breeze through? Yeah, because that, that gave Berrettini a... A, a walk extra game rest yeah gave him a walk over and sort of put him through to play Djokovic but yeah I mean obviously you, you say to them look you lost so your prize money stays the same unless you win that's a pretty simple way to fix it they don't get fourth round prize money the same yeah 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 that's fair un yeah. unless they win but yeah. I'm sure all the players would be more than happy to have another chance to to get through I mean you just call it a lucky loser yeah it's yeah. I'd be okay with that yeah but look, some absolutely amazing highs. We'll start off with Novak Djokovic. He, look, he's, he's someone that we have been openly critical of for a lot of his off-court stuff over the past year. And who knows, Shui, if it weren't for that time when he hit the ball person in the throat, <laughs> he might have had yet another title under his belt. Well, yeah, probably have him in a virtual tie with, uh, yeah. with Federer and Nadal. Yeah. But yeah, look, let's, I mean, look, we've got to quickly talk about him. He is absolutely untouchable right now. Like being able to overcome a two-set deficit in the fourth round against Lorenzo Massetti and also in the final against Stefano Tsitsipas, like, that is incredibly hard to do. And we should very quickly actually pause, because you know I like little tangents. We should just pause for a second, I guess, to spare a massive thought for Tsitsipas. He found out his grandmother had passed away five minutes before the game started. Oh, why did they tell him? Exactly. Well, who told him? 
I, I don't know. Oh, I'm not sure. That's but madness. Yeah, I, I think that is horrendous form. Whoever decided to tell him that. I mean, bloody hell. As horrible as the news is, that has to wait until after. Absolutely, five minutes. Yeah. No wonder he lost. Yeah. Well, he was. He played really well, but I mean, jeez. Yeah, it's absolutely nuts. But yeah, Djokovic, as I said, he's at another level. He he doesn't serve that many aces, but he's still top ten in percentage of service games won. He did serve really well in Paris, I have to say, and it's it's not a a surface that really is a great advantage to some of the big servers in the game. Obviously, the ball doesn't move quite as fast off the clay, so it's good for the returners of the, the ball, which Djokovic is arguably the best returner in the game right now. He's up there with maybe Nadal and Diego Schwartzman. But, yeah, he ranks number one for return points one, even if you just look at clay. Like, he ranks number one for that. He's number three in return games one. He's number four in break point percentage. For a long time, Rafa Nadal was the most resilient player on tour. The he, king of clay. He, yeah, he was a guy that you just could not get past. You had yep. to win points against him three or four times. That title now belongs to Djokovic. He is just, just impossible to get past. So, yeah, as we said, he's one grand slam behind Federer and Nadal right now. He's the first guy in the open era and the third man overall to win all four majors at least twice. I dare say he'll win Wimbledon two for number 20. He's got maybe four more years at the top. He could be pushing for 30. Yeah, well. That is That was an inconceivable he's number. He's killing it at the moment. Absolutely inconceivable. That'll be a number that no one will pass. I can guarantee it. So, as you mentioned, though, the women's draw was absolutely crazy. We had so many unseeded players making quarters and semifinals. The winner, Barbara Krejcikova, she was just the third unseeded woman to win the French Open after Yelena Ostapenko in 2017 and Iga Swiatek last year. And her work didn't stop there. No, she won the doubles as well. Yeah. So, yeah, this was this was nuts. I think the, the last time that happened was Mary Pierce in 2000. So it hasn't happened in a long time. Not many people have done it. I know John McEnroe did it a few times in the, the 70s and, uh, and around that sort of, yeah, mid-70s time. But, yeah, I mean... It's just crazy when you think about how many first-time winners are happening in the women's draw in the French Open. And even someone who I've spoken about a number of times in the past, Coco Goff, got quite far into the tournament. So, yeah, the future is looking She's incredible. very impressive. She's a very impressive speaker too, Coco Goff. Yeah. yeah. But just, yeah, going back to Krejcikova for a second, she was a magnificent champion. Quite often you see a lot of these players, the histrionics, you know, they've, they've won, they throw themselves to the ground and start doing like clay angels and all sorts of stupid stuff. <laughs> she was so calm and collected. Even after match point, when the, the last ball went out, game set match was called, little fist bump walked to, towards the net to congratulate her opponent. That's not the sort of stuff you see from champions. Usually they just lose their mind. And I have first so, time champions. So well, yeah, champions, well, any you're champions right. Champions in general. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I have so much respect for her. She didn't fall to the floor. She didn't lose her mind and start crying. You know, she just got on with things. And I, and I think seeing someone so composed in some of the biggest seconds and, and pressure moments of their life, this is. Just it's so refreshing, honestly. But no, look, it was an odd Grand Slam. It was a successful Grand Slam. Thankfully, we've only got to wait a few minutes for Wimbledon now. It's it, just a, a really, really great spectacle. I, I just can't wait. Good time for tennis. Yeah. So, Shui, we've made no apologies for concentrating on the basketball during the playoffs, which makes total sense. But we do have another AFL round in the books, and we'll race through it. As we sit at about the halfway point, it was the longest round of the season thus far, stretching from Thursday through Monday. 
Even a couple of teams were on a bye too. It had it all, didn't it? Cracking goals, including match winners, and Geelong kicking three goals in 57 seconds. It had upsets. It had a draw the first of the season. The big freeze number seven, raising over $2.5 million for motor neurons disease. Some nasty injuries. And of course, St Kilda doing St Kilda things by blowing a big lead to the Crows. As Daisy Thomas said on Triple M the other day, don't let them walk your dog because they can't hold on to a lead. Ah, classic. But as always, and we forgot this last week, tips. Well, an absolute masterpiece of shitness from me again. <laughs> so technically... We've got two rounds to talk about. Well... Last week and this week. The previous round, what was that? Three out of six? We both had three the previous round. We forgot to mention. Yep. Um, so technically this round, I only got the Geelong game right. Ouch. I managed to get given a tick for the draw. But yeah, I tipped one winner. Yeah. Okay. I had five out of seven. So I'm now, I think I was sitting at 765 overall. So I'm back into the triple figures rather than the quadruple figures. Look, I just seem to be able to jinx anyone right now. So (laughs) that's what I'm doing. I'm tipping the teams I want to lose in order to help out the Eagles. That's that's my plan. (laughs) Okay. And and it's working. Uh, It's working right now. Do we talk about the Eagles first or do we talk about Bucks? We've got to go with Bucks. We've got to go with Bucks. We've got to go with Bucks. Going out on top, two in a row. Yeah, I mean, look, obviously not a great year for Bucks. Expectations of the team were pretty high. They thought they'd probably still be contending for a premiership this season. But then they had this off-season from hell. You know, they're essentially paying Adam Trelaw to go and play Giving away players, for one yeah. of the favourites. Yeah, they got rid of Jaden Stevenson, Tom Phillips, Adu Pasina-Vilagi. Three rounds in, they'd beaten Carlton. They'd run the Bulldogs and Lions close. You thought, yeah, they're probably going to be okay, but four and nine now after a win as well. After two wins. After two wins, sorry. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, look, they were they were really good, and, and uh, they're going to go into this caretaker mode now with Robert Harvey taking over. So what, I, what I'll do very, very quickly, just give you a quick snippet of why what I think they need to do with this, and then we'll, we'll get back to talking about Bucks. And by the way, how often does a team get the coach leaving bounce? It's so frequent in the AFL. Yeah. I, I nearly tipped Collingwood for that reason alone. I wish I did. Well, of course you do. <laughs> but yeah, look, what I think was great to see from Collingwood, and it was almost like, yeah, all the pressure was off and they could play freely yeah. because it didn't yep. matter for, for Bucks anymore. Yep. They used the corridor really bravely. And it is, it's amazing how brave you can be in these moments. Jordan Ngoi's move into the midfield was a, a touch of brilliance. He had 32 touches and was sensational. He won't play against Freer this week, though, because he got suspended. But, yeah, did a really great job on Clayton Oliver. They held him to 23 possessions down from 31 and a half this season. This is the sort of risk-reward play that they need to just put on for the rest of the season. I think the best thing they can do is just, yeah, try and dominate that, that corridor yep. and, and just just chance your arm a little bit. Yep. Trust your skills. They've got very skillful midfielders that can do that. So, And you've got to look at the bottom of your list to see what they've got. Yeah. But do you think Nathan Buckley should be a coach in the AFL? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think he should get another gig. Yeah, I do. Do you think he deserves a gig with a contender or do you think he's better with a team that's maybe rebuilding? Uh, I think I think he could do a good job at either. Either? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yourself? Oh, yeah. Look, I mean, he's obviously been a great coach for a number of years. I think one of the biggest disappointments is that Bucks hasn't managed to win a premiership as a player or a coach. Oh, he came so close. Absolutely deserved yeah. it. Look, I'm not going to say I'm disappointed that he didn't win one in 2018. You were as an Eagles fan. Yeah. yeah. He was one of my favourite non-Swans players to watch. Yeah, phenomenal player. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know which teams are going to be looking for coaches over the next couple of years, but I, I think he'll be there or there. Ah, the coaching there. carousel always turns. And I guess the, the other quick question from this game, like losses to the Pies and the Crows, who are both outside the top eight in recent weeks, 
Did we maybe get a bit too excited about Melbourne too soon or are we overreacting to a couple of bad weeks? But what that tells me is that they don't get up for the crap teams, mm. that they take them for granted. That's what that tells me. So in the finals, they're not going to be crap teams. So, yeah, I'm not too worried. Not too worried? Not too worried. That's that's fair enough. But, no, look, congrats to Bucks, obviously, for everything he's achieved. And, yeah, hopefully he does get another opportunity in the next couple. And, and I'd like to see that too. And, look, you know what? For now, he can focus. He's in a brand-new relationship away from the field. He can focus on that and kind of get away from the media and just enjoy being with his family for the, the next little bit. Yeah. Eagles. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Game, of the, game of the season. You, you cannot overstate the importance of this win for an undermanned side like the Eagles right now. Absolutely one of the games of the season. Uh, one of these ones that people will hopefully be talking about a little bit later in the season. I mean, you often talk about moments in seasons and it's it's easy to look at the goal that Josh Kennedy kicked. We'll get to that in a second. But 11 minutes left in this one, Richmond took the lead by 22 points. Shea Bolton basically waltzed inside 50 and kicked one to put him up by 22 points. Very, very easy at that stage for a team to just roll over and say, you know what, we've got guys out. This one got away from us. Let's just focus on getting through the rest of this without any injuries. We'll get to the bye. Off we go. But then some of the key guns started firing, which is what they're supposed to do in these big moments. Absolutely. Nick Natanui won the ensuing bounce pretty easily. Elliot Yo hacked a soccer ball forward. The Eagles pressured a free kick out of Dylan Grimes and Jake Waterman managed to just sneak one home inside the, the right goalpost. From there, pressure went through the roof. Shannon Hearn was magnificent down back. He was intercepting everything that came near him. The mistakes started creeping in from Richmond. They were obviously quite tired. They'd been travelling quite a lot, unfortunately for them. They, they've had to be outside of Melbourne. But yeah, they missed... Why time. they didn't stay in Perth after Dreamtime at the P is beyond me. I've but got no idea. Crazy. But... Yeah, look, it cost them. But yeah, they started missing targets. Their connections on the kicks kind of deserted them a little bit. Really key 50-meter penalty that led directly to a goal to Jamie Cripps. Like all of these things kind of added up. And before you knew it, Liam Ryan, he hadn't done much all game, but he had that really, really key and a really tough ball to pick up, sort of rolling sort of end on end. He's managed to scoop it up and in one motion, chuck it on the boot and then... Less than 15. <laughs> 14, 14 and a half, apparently. So, look, it's pretty obvious that that kick didn't go 15. But 14 I, and a half I can live with. It's the ones that go like seven Yeah, that piss me off. I have to admit, like a lot of people, when it happened live, I didn't even think about the distance. It didn't... Well, look, you're watching as a fan, probably. It, like, no, well, it, it just it didn't even look that bad. But then when I watched the replay afterwards, I thought, well, that... That, did look, that yeah. lo- It looked about 10 or 11, but they've managed to say it was 14 and a half. So you can kind of live with that. Yeah, yeah. But I never felt like Kennedy was going to miss that. As soon as they paid the mark, I thought he's he's going to kick this. This is the sort of distance he kicks these round the corner ones from. And sure enough, he steps back. And a great character building win for a lot of these younger players. I thought guys like Luke Edwards and Luke Foley were absolutely magnificent players to watch moving forward. But yeah, this is one of those ones where... If West Coast can get a few of their key players back over the next couple of weeks, they've got... Well, they're meant to after the bye. Yeah, so. they've got a tough game against the Bulldogs coming up, but then they've got a pretty decent run against some teams outside the top eight, which you know, gives them a chance to maybe still make a run. They're only percentage out of fourth place. So it's... it's oh, yeah, it's, it's bunched up in the top half of the ladder there. Yeah, I'd probably jump the gun on the Eagles season being over, mate. Uh, power of negative thing. Yeah, but, uh, but no, look, great win and obviously one that hopefully we can sort of build on moving forward. From my team to your team, I want to very quickly talk about the Hawthorne-Sydney game. No, I don't. No, No, I don't. You don't? No. No. 
I'm, I want to. I want to bring up one. Story. A mate said to me. He told me our schedule for the next three weeks, and I said, "I guarantee we'll drop at least one of them, even though we should win." And sure enough, well, we're we're a year ahead of where we probably should be. I think the expectations got lifted up by beating Brisbane in Brisbane and Richmond at the G, but we've also lost to Gold Coast by forty, and we've now lost to Hawthorne yeah. by forty, nearly. So yeah. I did want to just look. I know that you're far too good a bloke to blame the umpire. I'm going to do it for you. <laughs> well, look, they took a lot of marks very close to goal, and that was very important. But a 26 to 10 free kick count. Yeah, it's not great. That, that, that is the equal biggest discrepancy in free kicks this season, tying GWS's 30 to 14 lead against the Kilda in round one. Yeah. It's very hard to win a game, having said that. You know, that game, St Kilda actually did win that game, but it's hard to win a game when you're that far out in the freeze. So, I mean, what's there to say? I mean, Hawthorne did have a lot of really great players that that sort of bobbed up that you were not expecting. A lot of their young guys, like Kaczynski was superb up front. Yes, he was, yeah. But yeah. they were very good in the forward 50. Yeah. 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 So I think that's probably about as much as you want to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. What let's, can you do? We'll call it a night. That's what we'll do. All right, sure, you know what that music means. What do you have for? Well, as I quite often do, I'm going to leave the really obvious one for you this week. <laughs> for me, Geelong and the Western Bulldogs on Friday night should be an absolute cracker in the AFL. And I tell you what, I'm surprised, but I'm super keen for Atlanta and Philadelphia game six this week. How about yourself? Oh, mate, every NBA game from here is fascinating. There are so many twists and turns. Unfortunately, the Cats and Dogs will be on the same time as the Wildcats Melbourne Game 1 Grand Final Series. We'll try and find a seat between two screens to see both, but I'll be well and truly focusing on the Wildcats. Can't believe they made it. Really proud of them. Look forward to talking about it all next week. Until next time, I'm Nath. And I'm Stu. We are the Sport Blokes.